Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Ben Valsler and with Dave Ansell. And first we'll have a look at what's been going on in the world of science. Dave. Now scientists have come up with a new form of supercapacitor. There are two main traditional ways of storing electrical energy. You can either use a rechargeable battery to store the energy chemically, which will store a lot of energy up to about 350 watt-hours per kilogram. It will do so quite slowly and for a limited number of recharge cycles, so it might take a couple of hours to charge up your rechargeable batteries. The other option is to use a capacitor. This, in a simple case, is basically two sheets of metal with a layer of insulator in between. If you apply a voltage, some charge will flow onto the sheets and will be attracted to the opposite charge on the other sheet, so making it a bit more stable. Capacitors have the advantage that because they're not using chemical reactions, they can charge and discharge thousands of times faster than batteries, and they waste much less energy as heat. The problem is that conventional capacitors store less than a thousandth of the energy of batteries. To increase this, you need to reduce the distance between the charges, stabilising them and allowing the capacitor to store more charge, and therefore energy at the same voltage. Recently, by using activated carbon filled with an ionic liquid as an electrolyte, ultracapacitors have got this to about as good as lead-acid batteries. To improve this, you need to increase the surface area of the electrodes. Now, Chen Guan Lu and colleagues have used graphene, which is essentially a single layer of graphite, a single atom thick, as the electrode. This is about as thin as an electrode can possibly get. It's only one atom thick. And they've altered the graphite so that it's curved, and so they won't lie flat and stack. This means the ionic liquid electrolyte can get in between the layers and produces a very efficient capacitor. They can store between 80 and 136 watt-hours per kilogram, which is about as good as a nickel-metal hydride battery, which were the standard batteries about 10 or 15 years ago. This might not sound very impressive until you realise that it would charge in seconds or at the most a couple of minutes, as opposed to the hours for a lithium-ion battery. This would both allow a car to charge up as fast as you'd normally fill up with petrol and make it ideal for storing the large amounts of energy very quickly, such as when you brake hard in a hybrid vehicle, so you can regenerate that energy and use it later. So that not only gets around one of the problems with electric cars, which is that they take hours and hours to charge, but it also makes better use of a technology that we've already got in place, this regenerative braking, where we steal back some of the energy that we would otherwise just be wasting when we hit the brakes. That's right. If you brake really, really hard, the amount of energy which is coming back in through the regenerative brakes can be just too much for a battery to store, and so it gets wasted. Thank you, Dave. And now a new database, very friendlily named FRED, could help to establish how bees see flowers and help researchers understand more about one of the world's most important pollinators. Bee vision is very, very different from human vision. In fact, they perceive colours that we are simply incapable of seeing. Most insects have light-sensitive cells or photoreceptors that are sensitive to ultraviolet, blue and green light, and many have four or more receptor types, allowing them to perceive a wide range of wavelengths, from the long to the very short. In comparison, human eyes are simply not up to the job of assessing flower appearance objectively. Now, for the first time, a database has been developed that collects an extensive range of data on the full reflectance spectrum of flowers and has been made freely available online. 
Publishing in the open access journal PLOS One, Sarah Arnold from Queen Mary University of London and colleagues announced the creation of FRED, the Floral Reflectance Database, which contains the reflectance spectrum, or how much light is reflected at different wavelengths, for flowers from all over the world. To really understand the environment as perceived by an insect, you also need to know which wavelengths that particular species can detect. And this is also included in FRED, allowing researchers to create what's called a colour space for an insect, observing flowers specifically from that species' perspective. Now, Fred is set to grow as its users provide more reflectance data from different species in different habitats, and although so far their priority has been bees, people will improve the catalogue of insects that are available. And, as Fred contains data on flowers of different ages but from the same species, it can also be used by botanists to research global trends in flower colour, to research plant growth and plant development. It can be used by ecologists studying habitat diversity and interactions, as well as researchers who are trying to understand the vital role that pollinators play in our environment. So if we know what a bee sees, does that mean that we might be able to learn what a bee likes and therefore know how to attract them to, say, your nice fruit tree with lots of flowers on it? There's already been quite a lot of work that actually tells us what it is that bees look for in a flower. And we know about these nectar guides, which are lines and colours that we can't see that indicate where nectar might be found. But for the first time, this really collects the, the raw data about a wide range of flowers so that we can genuinely look at it without the filter of human perception and we could sample a whole field and understand where there are pockets that bees see the same as us where there are pockets that appear very boring to bees and start to get a better idea of how the ecology works together how the pollinator and plant interactions really work Now, Alzheimer's disease is a common cause of cognitive decline amongst elderly people. An estimated one person in every five over the age of 80 is affected and develops a range of symptoms, including memory loss. The cause of the disease is a build-up in the brain of a protein called beta amyloid, which damages nerve cells. But why does this happen? Chris Smith spoke to Randy Bateman, a neurologist at Washington University in St. Louis. So there was a basic question uh, which we began to consider about four or five years ago, and the question was, what causes Alzheimer's disease? And that question has been asked for a long while, but this was more directed at the current thinking about what causes Alzheimer's disease in relationship to what's known scientifically. And there's uh, an amyloid hypothesis which specifies that buildup of a protein called amyloid beta, which is normally made by our brains, that this increase in this protein in the brain leads to damage that causes the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Now, the basic question that we were asking was, in Alzheimer's disease, does the amyloid beta build up there because it's being produced too much or made too much in the brain, Or is it there because once made, the brain has a problem clearing it away? And so this comes as some of the basic information about amyloid beta is that the brain normally makes this. The neurons or the thinking cells of the brain normally produce this amyloid beta protein in the brain, and it's normally cleared away, and it doesn't build up into very high amounts. But what we also know is that in patients that have Alzheimer's disease, their brains are filled and littered with this substance to 100 to 1,000-fold normal levels. So it builds up at very high levels, and this is thought to be toxic to the brain and cause damage, ultimately culminating in dementia of the Alzheimer's type. So you've got two 
problems there. One of them is, is it that there's too much being produced or is it that it's not being dispensed with, dealt with by the brain as it is in a healthy person's brain? So how can you try and disentangle those two? That was the challenge, and that's where the technique was actually developed to answer this question. And essentially, the way to do this is actually to label the proteins as they're being made so you can track them. And then that once a protein is labeled, then you can track how fast it's being produced and how quickly it's being cleared away. The first publication of the method itself was in 2006, where we reported what normally happens in young healthy people with amyloid beta in the brains in terms of its production and its clearance rate. And oftentimes I use an analogy that this labeling system, imagine that you have a sink of water and you have a faucet on with water coming into the sink and you have a drain that's draining the sink at the same time. If you just look at the sink and you don't look at the faucet or the drain, you only see a level of water in the sink. And that's what we normally measure when we sample the fluid that surrounds the brain. We measure how much of that amyloid beta protein or the water level is there. And so one way to track how fast it's coming in is you can imagine that if you dyed the water coming out of the faucet a certain color, say blue, that the sink, the water in the sink would turn bluer and bluer over time the more blue water came into it. And if you watch over time, how much of that water has been labeled with that, in this case, a color label. In the case of the amyloid beta protein, we're using a label that's just slightly heavier for the protein. Then we can estimate how fast the production or the rate of water coming into the sink is. And by the same token, if you stop labeling and then you watch the water as it's cleared away, as new fresh clear water comes in and the blue is cleared away, you then have an estimation of how fast the sink is draining that water. And so this is what we do. We take a a label that incorporates into the protein. It's an amino acid, which is a building block of proteins, which our body normally makes. And it's slightly heavier than normal amino acids. We infuse that into the bloodstream of the person. And all the proteins that person is making can be tagged with this label, marking it as newly made. And then we sample over time the fluid that surrounds the brain. It's called cerebrospinal fluid. And we watch the appearance of this newly labeled amyloid beta protein. And then we stop labeling and we watch how that labeled amyloid beta is cleared away over time. And you did this in healthy people and you did this presumably in a group of Alzheimer's patients to compare the rates of production and removal of the beta amyloid in the brains of both. Exactly. And so in this study, what we did is we compared 12 people who have Alzheimer's disease compared to 12 people who don't have Alzheimer's disease but are uh, about the same age. And we compared the two to find that there was a significant decrease in the clearance of amyloid beta. But on average, there was no significant change in the production rate of amyloid beta. The only problem with this study is that it tells you about people who've already been diagnosed. And it would be very interesting to wind the clock back in their lives or or look upstream, look in people who are going to develop Alzheimer's disease or just look in people who are viewed as healthy and then follow them up and then see who does get Alzheimer's disease and see if there's anything lurking upstream in those people. That's exactly right. That's an insightful point and one which we're planning on doing. As the study goes on and participants come into the study, we're in fact following each individual over time clinically 
so that the cognitively normal people that have done the study, they don't all have exactly the same production and clearance rates. Some are faster and some are slower. And so the basic question is, are the people who have a slightly impaired or impaired clearance but are cognitively normal now, are those people at increased risk of getting the disease at some point in the future? How do you know that the people who have got the Alzheimer's disease now haven't just got a reduced clearance because the disease has in some way damaged the brain and the reduction in nerve cells that is associated with Alzheimer's disease has just impaired their ability to get rid of it and that's why you're seeing that as a consequence of the disease process, not so much as a consequence actually of having caused the disease. With the current data, there's no way to distinguish between those two possibilities. And although we may hypothesize that, for example, decreased clearance may lead to increased levels of amyloid beta and plaques, that's not demonstrated in this particular study. That's the point of doing the ongoing research is to determine if that's correct or not. Randy Bateman, a neurologist who's looking for a way to knock Alzheimer's disease on the head. He was talking to Chris Smith and has published that work this week in the journal Science. Dave? Now, here's another example where learning from nature might be useful. Apparently, glider pilots should be learning from falcons. Gliding in all its forms has become a relatively popular pastime, and if you want to glide for anything more than a few minutes, you've got to take advantage of thermals. These are areas of warm air rising amongst the colder air surrounding them. If you keep your glider inside this column of air moving upwards, you'll be lifted up without having to do any work yourself. The problem is, of course, that air is transparent, so you can't see the thermals and so you're just restricted to feeling their effects. So glider pilots have learnt various rules and worked them out so the glider stays inside the thermal. Essentially, they spiral around and around, and if um, the rate at which they're climbing increases, they make the spiral a bit larger because that means they can get their wings flatter, and therefore they're dropping through the air slightly slower. And if their rate of climb gets worse, they try and turn a bit tighter, which will pull them closer into the centre of the thermal. This system works really well if you have a really nice clean circular thermal. But if there's a lot of turbulence, you can get temporary updrafts, which is really easy to confuse with a real thermal. So the glider pilots can get just entirely confused by little temporary updrafts and they're left in the middle of an area with no uprising air and then they might end up on the ground in the middle of nowhere. They've got to call in their mates to pick them up. Which is precisely not what you need when you're gliding, of course. That's right. Now, Zusa Akos and colleagues at Etvos University in Budapest have been studying the flight of peregrine falcons, essentially by attaching GPS receivers to them. They've noticed that rather always spiralling in one direction, they occasionally swap the direction which they're spiralling in. Now, this sounds really stupid because it will cause them to leave the nice thermal they're in already. But in very turbulent air, this means they can test a larger volume of air for other better thermals. If they won't find a better one, they'll stay in it. And in computer simulations, it turns out to be a much better strategy than the conventional one. This is, of course, of interest to glider pilots, but also to manufacturers' unmanned air vehicles, which are used to kind of study the ground so you've got cameras on them to see what's going on all the time. And they could save an awful lot of energy by soaring rather than having to run their engines all the time. And nice simple rules like this allow them to soar without using up all the energy calculating where they should be going next. Thank you, Dave. Observations made by the Keck telescope in Hawaii have confirmed a fourth planet orbiting a nearby star, but have thrown current theories of planetary formation into doubt. 
Publishing in the journal Nature this week, Christian Mawar from the Hertzberg Institute of Astrophysics in Canada and colleagues in the United States have analysed near-infrared images of the star HR8799 and found a new exoplanet to add to the three already previously discovered. These planets have particular properties that make this sort of imaging possible. They're very massive. The new one is somewhere between 7 and 10 times the mass of Jupiter. They're a long way from the star itself, over 25 times the distance between the Sun and the Earth. That's 25 astronomical units. And they're relatively young, less than 100 million years old. Younger planets are still hot from their creation, which makes them glow brightly in these near-infrared frequencies. Now, finding new planets is always fascinating in itself, but the really interesting thing about this system is that it doesn't fit with current models of planetary formation. There are two models that describe the formation of giant planets like this. There's the core accretion model, where small bits of rock collide and gradually clump together until that lump has enough mass and therefore enough gravity to hold on to an atmosphere. And there's also the disk instability or gravitational collapse model, where variations in the disk of material around the star, that's called a protoplanetary disk or a proplid, will condense out to form balls of gas that then gradually collect dusty matter at their core. In the case of the HR8799 system, the innermost planet could well have formed by core accretion, but those further out would actually need far longer to do so. In fact, they'd need more than the age of the star itself, so obviously that can't have happened. So we look to the disk instability model. But in that case, the protoplanetary disk would not have been in the right condition to allow the innermost planet to form back when it did. So how did these planets get there? Well, right now we just can't be sure. The authors say that a hybrid process with different planets forming through different mechanisms cannot be ruled out, but seems unlikely with the similar masses and dynamical properties of the four planets. The other option is that planets formed elsewhere and then moved into their current locations. But the thing is that until we find more systems like this one, we simply don't have enough information to be able to make this decision. But with exoplanets being discovered at a frankly astounding rate, we may find more of these planetary families soon. Now again, on the space theme, an American entrepreneur has launched a cheese into space. A cheese. A cheese. A wheel of cheese. <laughs> an actual edible cheese. An actual edible cheese. Great big one, a couple of feet across. <laughs> now SpaceX is a relatively small Californian-based company, and it has just launched a wheel of Le Bruyere cheese into space, and more impressively, brought it back down again after two orbits. Why? Essentially just because they could. So why not? Exactly. The really impressive thing about SpaceX, which is a relatively small company mostly owned by Elon Musk, who made a fortune out of PayPal and decided to spend the money essentially building space rockets to try and get our civilization into space, um, is this company has both built the Falcon 9 rocket themselves and the Dragon space capsule, um, which brought it back down again. Um, and this is particularly interesting because a capsule is designed to be able to carry seven people at some point in the future when they've done a few extra safety um, attributions and when the rocket is known to be a bit more reliable. And for now, SpaceX are concentrating on using the Dragon capsule to take cargo to and from the International Space Station. The cheese was sent up because they needed something to act as a payload and it's an experimental rocket and no one's going to put anything really valuable on there. And there was no reason not to send a cheese. And I think it's rather refreshing and positive for the space industry that someone is in a position to send some cheese into space just because they want to. 
And I guess that's because, of course, with every mission we've sent so far, every single gram that we send up there has to be accounted for. It has to do something for us. And so frivolities like cheese has just been something we haven't been able to think about. That's right. And the organisations are very large and bureaucratic. Whereas this is essentially a small startup company and Elon Musk is in control. And so if he wants to send some cheese up, he can. And I guess the, the really important question about this was, was there any ill effect to the cheese? How did it taste afterwards? I don't think anyone has eaten the cheese yet, but I'm sure it's now an awful lot more valuable than it was before they launched it up there. Thanks, Dave. If you'd like to know anything more about any of our news stories this week, you can find them on our website at thenakedscientists.com slash news. The Naked Scientists News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.